This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, Episode 333, The Periodic Table of Abundance, Number 4, Secrets of Leverage Using Insurance and Banking. Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your host, certified financial planner Mark Willis, invites you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious, be stable, be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode. You've got us right in the middle of our eight-part mini-series on the periodic table of financial abundance. It's a concept that's been really deeply explored by members of not your average financial community. And if you're wondering where to go next to take this next step in your financial journey and in exploring this periodic table, your financial universe, let this be a sign. Information alone cannot change your financial future. You've got to take action to change the destiny of your financial life. So right now, while it's at the top of your mind, at the top of this episode, I'm encouraging you to check out our community to dig deeper into these concepts and more importantly, to challenge yourself to take action. Every week, we've got challenges and topics of discussion, give and ask sessions and monthly mastermind calls that give all of us on that community site a chance to really implement positive changes in our finances. I love it. It's something I look forward to every day of the week. And most importantly, we're doing it together. So sign up for free. You can go to notyouraverage.mn.co and just ask for an invitation to join. Answer a few questions that let us know you're a real human and uh, we'll let you in. Now, there's almost a thousand people strong in our community And all of them have had such a positive reinforcement in their own financial journey, and it's helped me in my own as well. So I'm sure they'll be just as encouraging to you as they have been to me. I only ask that you give as much as you receive from our community. So that's notyouraverage.mn.co to sign up. Now, if you are new to this mini-series, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to the previous episodes where we covered some essential elements in your financial universe, such as mindset and scaling up, having that bigger growth mindset, or liquidity, or how about cash flow? How about your money team, the team that's building and helping support you toward your ends and and financial goals? And don't forget estate planning. Each episode in this eight-part mini-series is really designed to empower you with the knowledge and insights you need to create a financially abundant life. So today, we're going to take another stab at this. We're going to look at several other elements in your financial universe, the first of which is going to be insurance. Now, insurance is something that many people overlook. They underestimate it. Maybe they misunderstand it when it comes to their financial well-being. Some people skip right over the insurance element altogether and chase after higher rates of return. And they're looking at their financial periodic table and saying, what a waste to put all this money or time or attention on insurance. Maybe they think insurance is only for the wealthy or the elderly or maybe just the unlucky. And still other people think of insurance as a big scam. I've seen them. I've met them. But here's the real truth. Insurance is none of those things. Insurance can be a powerful tool to help protect you and your family and your assets from all the wildness of the world that could otherwise ruin your financial plans and goals. Imagine just winning the lottery yesterday, only to have someone slip on the banana peel outside your house 
and steal or sue you for all your lottery winnings today. What a waste, right? Now, at its most essential nature, insurance is just a way of transferring the risk of loss from you to a third party, like an insurance company. That's it. Just transferring the risk. Now, in exchange for that transfer, there's obviously going to be a fee or a premium paid to the insurance company to make sure that they, one, are in the business for profit, and two, they're around later on when you need them the most. Insurance can be a way of creating a peace of mind, a security blanket, a stability platform, let's say, to help you in your financial life. And isn't it peace of mind that's at the core and really at the very centerpiece of this periodic a table of abundance? Isn't that what financially stress-free lives are all about? When you think about it, this whole mini-series is called the periodic table of financial abundance. Financial abundance is the outcome, but why chase abundance in the first place? Now, what good is having a big, abundant pile of money or an empire of real estate properties or, or a complex estate plan? To me, I think the purpose of all this is peace of mind, security of outcome, stability in your financial life. Insurance cuts to the quick and gets you that outcome of abundance and peace of mind with a guaranteed contract. Now, if you can imagine it, I can assure you someone is probably willing to insure it. So there's almost infinite types of insurance out there. For example, did you know that there's an insurance policy protecting you against zombie apocalypses or becoming pregnant through a virgin birth miracle? Yeah, those things literally exist. I checked it out. Now, we're not going to cover every last kind of insurance policy out there, but here are some of the essential types of insurance you may need or want to have in your financial portfolio and how they'll benefit you and how to sign up for these and how to get things rolling in your insurance element in your periodic table. So we're going to cover a few health insurance, life insurance, property and casualty, things like that. But there's a lot more to this. So we're, we're also going to touch on some other insurance forms you may not be aware of. Now, obviously, there's a lot more to it that we're not going to get to. But by the end of this segment in our episode, you're going to have a better understanding of what insurance is, why you need it and how to get it. So let's dive in. All right, so the first one we're going to get into is health insurance. It's one of the most common, maybe the most essential types of insurance to have in your financial portfolio. It's the kind of insurance that covers your medical bills, your expenses for you, for your family. And it pays not just for injury and illness, but also taking care of you and preventative care. So some types of health insurance also pay for chronic care, like diabetes or cancer, heart disease. The big reason to have this health insurance stuff is because healthcare is super expensive and very unpredictable. Now, this does not mean that health insurance is cheap. It just means that the alternative to not having some sort of coverage for healthcare is even more expensive. In fact, according to a study by the Kaiser Family Foundation, the average annual premium for employer-sponsored health insurance in 2020 was 7,400 bucks. That's for an individual and 21,300 bucks for a family. Unbelievably expensive for most families. But if you think getting a health insurance policy is expensive, try being uninsured. According to a study by the American Journal of Public Health, medical debt, medical debt is the leading cause of bankruptcy in the United States. About 530,000 families file for bankruptcy each year just because of medical bills, okay? So that's almost Half a million families every year going through bankruptcy just because of medical bills. That's unbelievable. And that's not even counting the millions of people who are struggling under the weight of their medical bills without filing bankruptcy and the impact it has on their credit scores, their savings, their stress, their quality of life, 
you might make it out of the hospital and then die from all the stress of trying to pay the hospital bills. Now, usually the best way to get health insurance is to go through your employer if you're employed or setting up a policy on your own if you're an entrepreneur. Uh, And the employer or your business will pay a portion of your premium and you'll have access to group plans that offer better coverage than individual marketplace plans would. Now, the health insurance marketplace is a platform where you can compare and shop for health plans that meet the minimum standards that the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, set up years ago. The marketplace also offers a bunch of subsidies and even tax credits to help people who need help in paying premiums. So depending on your income and household size, you can maybe take advantage of that. Not all states have their own marketplace. It's a state-by-state thing. Not all plans are available in every state, so you may have to pay a penalty if you don't have health insurance that meets the minimum standards. Of course, if you're of a certain age or have a disability or have a lower income, you can also get access to Medicare, Medicaid, or even CHIP programs as well. Now, a sort of a unique way that I've enjoyed for many years is to get health care coverage through a health-sharing ministry which is not health insurance. It's a nonprofit organization that pulls money from members to pay for each other's medical expenses. Again, healthcare sharing ministries are technically not insurance, but they function similarly. They're usually based on religious or ethical beliefs, some sort of a structure of beliefs, and they have a certain rule or or way of life. There's typically a restriction on what they cover, what they operate under. So for example, they may not cover certain pre-existing conditions, or if there's a certain treatment or illness that they deem immoral or unnecessary, they may not want to cover that. So you may want to check in their guidelines before signing up. You know, you may have to do things like abstain from smoking or excessive drinking or, you know, illegal drugs, that sort of thing. Now, health sharing ministries are usually cheaper, way cheaper than traditional insurance, but they're not regulated by the government. And so they don't guarantee a payment for medical bills. Uh, But candidly, I found health insurance companies also have a large portion of their bills that are not paid. The the claims are not necessarily 100% paid either. So there are a lot of health sharing programs out there that are not tied to religious beliefs, by the way. So if you want to get into this or dig deeper, look at the two episodes we've done on this topic. Episode 170, where we talked to someone from Samaritan Ministries. And then uh, for someone who wants to look at this without the religious component, you might look at episode 224, Uninsured and Loving It with Andy Schoonover. So as you can see, there is a complex maze of options, each of them coming with pros and cons. Uh, and, And the key here really is to do your own research and compare your options. Meet with somebody who really understands what you're trying to do with your health insurance goals. They'll help you look out for blind spots. Now, I don't offer health insurance here at my firm but I can review what you have or what options you've been given. And I do also know a couple of different colleagues that I trust and can help connect you with them uh, for the right solutions. Next up is going to be property and casualty insurance. Now, this is another type of insurance that you really need to have in your financial portfolio. Property and casualty insurance is a kind of insurance that covers the damage of loss of your property, like your home or your car, your personal stuff, as well as all your liabilities your legal responsibility. What if you injured somebody or damaged their car or property? So property and casualty insurance really helps you repair or replace your stuff, as well as paying for other people's medical bills, legal fees, settlements, that sort of thing, a lawsuit even. Uh, So why do you need this? Why do you need this kind of insurance? Well, the main reason is that your stuff is valuable and 
liability, especially in this day and age, is unpredictable. You never know when your property might be damaged or destroyed by a fire or a flood or theft or vandalism. You never know, really, if you'll be involved in a car accident or some sort of claim is put against you. You might result in some somebody else getting injured or feel like they've been damaged somehow. In fact, according to a study by the Insurance Information Institute, the average claim for property damage in 2019 was over 11400 bucks, and the average claim for bodily injury was $18,400. So that's a lot of money to pay out of pocket if you don't have any kind of property or casualty insurance. And remember, those are just the averages, and there are plenty of cases where people have to pay a whole lot more than that. So another reason why you might need property and casualty insurance is it might Honestly, it'll protect you from financial ruin. According to the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, 12% of drivers out there on the road are uninsured. So one in 10 of us are out there driving around with any, without any auto insurance. And about 20%, so one in five of us, are underinsured. This means if you're hit by somebody who does not have insurance, you may not be able to get anything out of them or get your damages covered by them. You may also be sued by the guy or gal who you hit or hit you. Even if they hit you, they might try to sue you by their insurance company. Or if you're found to be at fault or partially at fault by an accident, you might have damages to pay the person who hit you. Similarly, if your home is damaged or destroyed by a natural disaster or a hurricane or tornado, something like that, it may not be covered by your typical homeowner's insurance policy. So there are umbrella policies that you might need to look into as well to help cover those eventualities. You might unfortunately get sued by a neighbor or their insurance company if your property causes them damage or harm in some way. Basically, you know, if you can imagine it happening to your life, uh, something bad happening to you, it's probably happened and somebody has probably figured out a way to insure folks against that risk. So you can either get property and casualty insurance through your employer or you can get coverage through an individual plan or a marketplace through an agent or a broker. So there's so many kinds of property and casualty insurance, it'd be really impossible to contain it all here in one episode. You got fire insurance, flood insurance, earthquakes. The key really is to look at a comprehensive coverage, figure out what your deductibles are. So coverage, again, is the amount of money that your insurance company would pay, and the deductible is the amount of money you'd pay out of pocket before the insurance company steps in to cover the rest. Now, a lot of people in this world decide to self-insure against certain risks. It's a way of using your own cash instead of paying an insurance company for the cost of covering your stuff, your property. So this helps by saving you some money on premiums. That's true. So for example, if you're worried about dropping your cell phone in the sink while doing the dishes, well, first of all, I'd say put the phone down and just get the dishes done, please. But second, you can either pay some insurance company a premium to replace that cell phone or just keep a little money on hand and replace the cell phone if it drops in the suds. All right, so the next insurance type I wanna focus in on is life insurance. Now this is another form of coverage that honestly you should have in your financial portfolio. Life insurance is a type of insurance that pays out a lump sum of money to your beneficiaries, that'd be your spouse or your kids or charity in the event of your death. So why get life insurance? Honestly, it comes down to love. If you love your family, if you want to protect them from financial hardships and stress in the case of something happening to you, get life insurance. If you care about or love the charities you believe in, why should your donations to that charity stop just because your heart stopped beating? Now, if you 
contribute to your family or your community, your death would leave your survivors in a very difficult situation. Now, it's never fun to pay a premium just to cover some scary thing like a, your own death, your own mortality. It's never fun to think about either. But think about it for a minute. If you believe you cannot afford the premium of a life insurance policy, how will your family afford the cost of covering the mortgage, the car, the payments, the groceries, the utilities, the college tuition, all the other expenses that you used to pay for while you were alive? Again, I'll say it again. If you can't afford the premium, how will they afford the problem of your passing away? Now, of course, there are lots of kinds of life insurance out there. Of course, there's cheap term. You can find that on the web. You can get that by yourself. There's oftentimes life insurance offered through your employer as an employee benefit. Some employers may even help cover the premium and you'll have access to a group life plan. Typically, you lose that coverage if you ever leave your employer. However, a lot of people who get life insurance kind of on their own end up with the wrong kind of insurance and they end up wasting a lot of money and time on policies that are not properly designed for their goals or their needs. They either get way too little insurance or cheap term that doesn't have any benefit, or they spend way too much on loaded up variable life insurance that can get bounced around in the markets. So sitting down with somebody who can really evaluate your overall objectives can make a lot of sense here. And I typically encourage folks to meet with me before they move forward, even on a simple term insurance policy. So reach out to me and let's talk about it. And this is where insurance can overlap into our second financial element of today's episode, which is banking. Now, we just got done talking about life insurance. So what does banking have to do with life insurance? Well, if you think about it, your need for financing, all the major purchases in your lifetime, is much greater than your need for life insurance. Now, this is something that Nelson Nash, the creator of the infinite banking concept, always used to say when I would talk to him and hear him speak, but I never really understood it. So think about all the stuff you'll buy in your life. All the cars, refrigerators, college education, for your kids, of course, for your home repairs, your business equipment. And honestly, it stacks up to millions of dollars if you totaled it all. And if you pass away prematurely, your family's going to need to replace all the income you were making and, and more. But now that you're graduated to the other side of the grass, you won't be there to buy or need all those refrigerators or cars and all that stuff for yourself. You'll be on the streets of gold and all that, all the bigger, better projects that you'll be on to. So your need for today's financing is much greater than your need for insurance. This is why the concept I've been teaching and practicing for over a decade, something called bank on yourself, I believe is so crucial right here. Pamela Yellen is the founder of the bank on yourself strategy, and she owns the trademark and the phrase, and she also does the training as, and as one of her bank on yourself professionals, I've been credentialed and authorized by her to share this strategy, implement it for my clients. And now I've been privileged to work with clients in all 50 states and, and beyond. So bank on yourself, what is it? It's a way of using a specially designed whole life insurance policy as a personal savings vehicle. And it doubles as a life insurance contract. It can help you grow your wealth in a guaranteed and even contractual way. It can help you reduce or even eliminate taxes while giving you access to your money anytime for any reason without penalties or fees or gotchas. Bank on yourself type policies are different from regular whole life policies since they have higher cash value, lower commissions paid, and a ton more flexibility. These bank on yourself type whole life policies are different from other types of life insurance like term insurance since they offer a guaranteed growth on something called cash value. And that cash value also has tax advantages. 
and protection from creditors and lawsuits, it becomes a truly a living benefit, not just a death benefit, but a living benefit. And if you think about it, bank on yourself designed policies are not only a great way to get life insurance, but they're also a great way to manage the financing of your major purchases in your life. Again, the cars, the homes, the education, the business investments, all without relying on banks, credit cards, loans. So by using your policy's cash value as collateral, we're going to get into collateral in a later episode here, we'll be borrowing against our cash value to make that major purchase while the policy continues to grow uninterrupted. So this effect gives you a compounding nature to your wealth and will help increase your money and wealth over time. Bank on yourself type policies are a great way to supplement your retirement income since you can withdraw the money or even borrow the money out of the policy. And the tax law today says that you can access that money without any taxes due and without affecting your social security benefits and Medicare premiums. So banking, the function of banking, banking itself at its core is more than just savings and deposits and checking accounts. I believe banking is at the very center of the nature of human wealth and and its relationship to money. In fact, there's a book by David Graeber titled Debt, the First 5,000 Years. Now, when you see a title like that on your bookshelf, you know it's going to be a pretty monstrous book, and it definitely was. I mean, it still surprises me how few people understand how banking really works. And it all comes down to something known as fractional reserves. Now, fractional reserve banking systems is the system of banking in all countries worldwide. This is where banks take deposits from the public and keep only a part of that deposit liability in liquid assets as a reserve. So they'll typically lend out the remainder to the borrowers of the bank. So the fractional reserve banking system is based on this idea that most depositors won't go rushing the bank all at once to withdraw their money at the same time and that borrowers are going to repay their loans mostly on time. And they've got this whole thing figured out. So the fractional reserve banking system allows banks to create money out of nothing into our economy by multiplying the initial deposit through that money multiplier process. Let me explain quickly how banking really works. So how does the fractional reserve banking system really work? Let me use a simple example to illustrate this. Okay, so let's say you deposited a thousand bucks into a bank account. And the bank has a reserve requirement ratio of 10%. Okay, so every bank has this reserve requirement ratio. Their choice was 10%, meaning they have to keep 10% of its deposits as reserves, and they'll lend out the rest. So this hypothetical bank is keeping out of your $1,000 only $100 on their books, and they're going to lend $900 out to another customer. Remember, your $100 represents a liability to the bank, And the loan that they gave to the customer behind you in line asking for a car loan, well, that's an asset to the bank because when they loan out money, that's going to be a cash flow stream for the bank. Let's say the guy behind you in line who got his loan for 900 bucks out of your 1,000, let's say he spent his money on a car repair. The auto shop then, the auto shop deposits the money into their bank. Okay, so that $900 went into a new bank account. The second bank keeps $90 as its reserve, and it lends out $810 to a third customer. Let's say that third customer spends $810 on a vacation, and the travel agency, okay, so the travel agency deposits that $810 in the bank, and now that third bank keeps $81 on reserve and lends out $729 to the next guy, and so on and so on. As you can see, as you can clearly see, 
this initial deposit, all you had was a thousand bucks. It created $10,000 of money in the economy through a series of loans and deposits. So this money multiplier effect has a dramatic implication for your financial life and the world economy, really. The higher the reserve ratio requirement, the lower that money multiplier can be. And vice versa, the money multiplier shows how much money the banking system can create out of any given amount of cash that gets deposited. So all this probably sounds magical, right? Making money out of nothing appear. So of course it expands the economy. It frees capital for lending, which gets everybody consuming and more and more jobs are created. So these are good things about the fractional reserve system. But unfortunately, it also enables central banks around the world to manipulate the money supply and the interest rates in the economy that that implement monetary policies and influence the availability of cash and credit for the economy. So for example, in 2020, during the COVID lockdowns and the pandemic there, the reserve requirement in, in the FDIC-related banks here in the United States was lowered from 10%, which is where it was in 2019, down to 0%. And it's still at that 0% as of today, as of this recording. So check this out. This is not me just you know theorizing. Check this out. It's right there on the Federal Reserve's website. So this means that they can create an infinite, infinite amount of money by lending out as much as banks wish to lend, leaving nothing in reserve. Now, just hearing all that described, can you see where this might go terribly wrong for the world economy and for the banks in particular? So fractional reserve banking creates instability and risk in the financial system. It exposes banks and ultimately all of us to the possibility of major financial calamity. Bank runs. If you recall bank runs, this is where everybody rushes to get their money out of the bank and causes the bank to run out of their limited amount that they keep in their vaults and on their books, and banks ultimately become insolvent as a result of the bank run. So the less they have on reserve, the more fragile the banking system is. In the 1930s, the government set up something called the FDIC insurance, which was sort of a guarantee for depositors. But even that FDIC is under a lot of scrutiny right now with how little they're keeping on reserve. Only 1% of all bank deposits are still backed up by any FDIC money. Let, them, let me say that again. Less than 1% of all deposits in this country are backed up with actual money at the FDIC. And ultimately, all this fractional reserve banking does is create more inflation. Inflation, of course, is what we've experienced the last few years as prices of everything has gone up. Inflation reduces the purchasing power of money, which means you buy less stuff with the same amount of money over time. Fractional reserve banking, the FDIC, and lower interest rates over the last 25 years all caused people to make honestly stupid decisions with their money, like putting money into bank accounts without doing any due diligence on the bank's health or its financial strength, or investing all their money in weird, crazy startups that had no prospects for success or investment projects that are doomed to fail. Check out episode 299 if you want to get even more crazy ideas on how this fractional reserve banking has really led to a lot of the problems in the world economy today. So back to the element of banking and how it relates to the periodic table of abundance in your life. Now, there's not a lot we can do in terms of stopping the fractional reserve banking system by our lonesomes. Okay, so banking is still, I believe, a key element in your periodic table of financial abundance, partly because of how it helps you avoid the bad practices of banks like we know them. You know, this, the mega banks right down to the local credit union. And it helps you participate at the same time 
in the good side of banking. Now, of course, banking and debt is a common and widespread phenomenon. Most Americans have some form of debt, including mortgages, auto loans, credit cards, student loans, that sort of thing. And yes, debt is very useful. It can be used in many ways to help us achieve our goals faster than saving or paying for cash for everything. But it can also be the centerpiece of financial stress. It'll force us maybe into making bad choices. It'll reduce our future ability to save, get us focused on the present of paying that bill, paying that bill, or just living in the past of why did I do that? Why did I buy that you know, third toaster and so much more? So according to the latest data from the Federal Reserve, the total personal debt in the United States is at an all-time high right now of $16.9 trillion. That's almost $17 trillion bucks in the second quarter of 2023. The average American debt in the United States is $58,600. And if you add to that all the federal debt, according to usdebtclock.org, as of this recording, every taxpayer in America currently owes approximately $259,600 in debt. Now, do you have that kind of money just laying around in your bank account to cover that bill in case the country's debt collapses and if the creditors of the United States come collecting? I didn't think so. It's not allocated in my budget to pay off the U.S. debt creditors. So is paying cash, avoiding all this debt nonsense and paying cash for all of our big purchases, is that the answer? Could we just avoid all this banking stuff if we just bought our stuff with cash? Unfortunately, no. If you save money in a bank account and you pay cash for your cars and college educations and whatever, you're still a part of the banking problem because... You're still using someone else's bank to participate in the fractional reserve banking problem. Now, when you save money in a bank account, you're encouraging banks to amplify that money supply and further their evil scheme. Yes, evil. I'll use that word. Evil scheme of creating money out of nothing, promoting inflation and influencing malinvestments. So if we can't use bank accounts and savings accounts due to all these problems, and paying interest brings us to enslavement to the banks, and we can't even save money in our bank account to pay cash for cars and microwaves. Well, what are we going to do? We still need to buy our stuff. So what do we do here? Again, I think the bank on yourself strategy here is a simple and elegant solution to a very complex problem. When you put money or premium into a life insurance policy designed the bank on yourself way, you're choosing with that money to opt out of the banking system. Every dollar you have then becomes a vote. And when you put your money into these policies, you're voting for a more abundant future that does not rely on banks and all of their scheming. So why do I put insurance and banking in the same episode on financial abundance? Guys, there's so many overlaps here. First of all, the idea of leverage. Insurance is a form of leverage. I can pay a small premium and leverage a very large payout if something should happen to my health or my car or even my very life. Similarly, when I think about banking, debt is a form of leverage too, isn't it? Certainly, both banking and insurance are core to the human experience. We all have stuff. We all have our health. We all have our very life. So similarly, anyone who's part of the financial economy is part of the banking system to the extent that they're contributing to their bank accounts, or borrowing from that bank down the street. But what if we could be a private lender to ourself? What would happen to the world? What would happen to your personal life? How would it feel if you could bank on yourself? If you could turn the problem of debt 
into a real solution. Would that impact your ability to reach your goals and find real abundance? Could other people bank on you as well? Remember our second episode in our mini-series, episode 331, we talked about family finance. So what if your family were your best customers at your, quote, bank? Now, of course, we're not setting up a traditional bank in the way you understand it down the street, the FDIC-insured banks and all that nonsense. We're setting up life insurance policies that can be used as a form of capital acquisition, security, and leverage. And when we do this, we're breaking free from the enslavement to banks and generating real wealth and, of course, financial abundance at the same time. So here's the so what for today's episode. Okay, so number one, time to dust off those old insurance policies and make sure that you've made any necessary changes you need to make. Chat with me or chat with somebody who can review this in your money team. So someone who's not just pushing you into more insurance than you need. Okay, so that's the first takeaway. Number two, dig into the fractional reserve banking system. How it creates money out of thin air uh, using debt out of nothing. Creating debt out of nothing. Notice how this brought so much pain and misery and even slavery to the world over the last 5,000 years. Do an inventory of your own debt and find ways that you might be able to use that debt then to your advantage. And third, explore the bank on yourself strategy to help you achieve financial abundance. You can chat with us to discuss how this tool might fit into your overall periodic table of abundance by going to notyouraveragefinancialpodcast.com and click on request a meeting. We'll have a sit-down discussion with you to see how the strategy of Bank on Yourself might fit into your periodic table. We'd be happy to get you a copy of the Bank on Yourself Revolution by Pamela Yellen or one of our special reports we've done on various topics, like how you can use this tool in your business or for real estate investing and lots more. We've got tons of content that can help you really explore this strategy. Now, speaking of investing and real estate, that's exactly where we're headed in our next episode in this mini-series, so stay tuned for a lot more exciting topics as we explore the periodic table of financial abundance. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think and live differently with your money, your economy, and your future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join a financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.